This is America on the Road, named best radio show by the International Automotive Media Conference and now in its 27th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. Car sales were down precipitously in the second quarter from the same time a year ago and finding a new car continues to be a difficult thing for consumers. We'll have the details on that and our reactions to that coming up. Meanwhile, a new study of the industry gives a rosy prediction about the future of electric vehicles, but is the study right? We'll give you the details on that and have an expert for you talking about that coming up. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at DrivingToday.com slash auto insurance. That's DrivingToday.com slash auto insurance. Hi, I'm Jack D. Red, and with me is guest host Matt DiLorenzo. Chris Teague is taking a break this week. He thought he was going on vacation. Unfortunately, his family couldn't go, but he's taking a break. So Matt is joining us, and uh, Matt's the author of a new book called How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car, A Tightwad's Guide to EV Ownership. I love that subtitle. (laughs) Matt, uh, thanks so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Jack. And uh, I look forward to talking about that book. Uh, it's a terrific one, uh, so spot on for the time. So we'll talk about that in the show. What vehicle will you be uh, road testing for us this week, Matt? I had an opportunity to drive the new Toyota BZ4X, which is their first um, all-electric vehicle mass-produced. They did a, a RAV4 briefly uh, for a couple of years in California only, but... Uh, this is them dipping their toe into the EV space with a, a car that'll be available in all 50 states. Yeah, well, I got a chance to drive it recently too, so uh, you and I can compare notes on that. I got a chance to drive uh, an exciting vehicle, the 2022 Chevrolet Silverado ZR2. It's an off-road version of that pickup truck. I, I drove it at the Motor Press Guild Drive Day recently, uh, among other places on the very challenging off-road course that uh, MPG had for the drive day. So uh, I'll tell you how it fared over that course. Uh, We also have a terrific interview for you. Our special guest is Andrew Gilliland. He is the Lexus Group VP in charge of the Lexus division at Toyota. And of course, Lexus has some important new vehicles coming out this year, including an all-new Lexus RX crossover. So we'll talk about that with him. And uh, we'll be chatting much more with Matt DiLorenzo as we go forward. So stay with us for that. Coming up is uh, news from around the world. So stay with us. With Matt DiLorenzo, this is Jack Red with you. And thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Matt DiLorenzo. This is Jack Red with you. And we're so glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. Chris Teague is taking the week off. Matt has joined us, and he's an expert on electric vehicles and on non-electric vehicles, for that matter, former editor of Road & Track, as I am former editor of Motor Trend Magazine, so uh, we'll have some fun chatting. Uh, It is the news segment of the show, and a a lot of news this week, including the fact that sales have been reported for uh, the second quarter, and they're pretty dismal, actually. Uh, it's, It's one of those weird markets, Matt, and I'd love you to talk about a bit about your take on this where sales are way way down and yet people can't find cars to buy i mean (laughs) it's kind of a a weird market isn't it yeah you know i think the chip shortage it continues to to impact the availability of vehicles and people aren't finding exactly what they want 
Um, the volume is down. Prices are up. You know, people are paying at or over sticker once they do find a car or they're waiting five, six months to get the kind of car that they ordered. Uh, I've never seen anything like it, to be quite frank. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, here's a, a, a report from Reuters. This is one of the shortest Reuters stories I have ever seen. The headline is almost as long <laughs> as the story itself. Uh, the story is only uh, two sentences. But the headline is one sentence, kind of carries the whole thing. GM has nearly 100,000 vehicles parked at its facilities without some parts. And that just speaks to the fact that supply chain, chip shortages, uh, those are the things that are really affecting sales. I mean, I think we would have many, many more sales uh, if uh, manufacturers could just build more vehicles. And it's just a major struggle and it continues to be a struggle. Yeah, you know, uh, it's almost like the uh, don't throw me in that briar patch. <laughs> that uh, The fact that it affects everybody and crimps supply this way, it's allowing a lot of manufacturers to make higher margins on, on lower volumes of sales. So um, it's, a, it's a problem, but and it's also a problem that, quite frankly, the industry is going to take its time to solve as long as it affects everybody equally. Once one or two companies get it figured out and start cranking it up, uh, the rest will follow. But we're not at that stage yet. Right. And one of the ways that manufacturers are saving money is they're not having to put incentives on cars, essentially lower prices or although they don't lower prices, instead they pile on incentives and have special <laughs> lease deals or this or that, and they're not having to do that now. In fact, quite the opposite. At the same time, uh, there's kind of windfall profits for some dealers, at least a profit per car, uh, because they're going out way above MSRP, so way, way above dealer invoice. Uh, but I think the dealers would like to have more inventory to sell, more cars to sell too, so it's uh, kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You see how that affects shopping because if they have fewer cars on the lot, I mean, people are used to, to buying cars that are on the ground already built. So um, I don't think you change that behavior. Um, and I think once more cars become available, things will return to quote unquote normal again, but right. it's still slow process. Well, a lot of people are suggesting that people will order cars and that'll make it <laughs> much more efficient for the industry. But uh, I think you and I have been around this industry long enough, Matt, to realize that that's very unlikely to happen, that people are still going to treat these uh, cars like, you know, picking up a magazine or a, a pack of gum at the checkout counter. Yeah. I mean, it's almost an impulse buy to buy a, a new vehicle, even though they cost 40 grand or so. It's kind of amazing, but that's the way it works. Well, I, I also think that the manufacturers have a tremendous body of data that shows what sort of packages people buy, what kind of colors, and they tend to batch build things, which is a more efficient and and actually helps keep prices in check. If we go to a complete, you know, back to the old days where you order your car and you wait six or eight weeks, I think it uh, it's not as efficient way of, of of building cars and pricing them and selling them. Yeah. Uh, it, so we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. We will see, but. Uh... Well, here's something we will see about, too, and this is a study from uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, um, and it is very positive about electrified cars, but they kind of hedge their bets a little bit. Here is the, 
It's called the Car Wars Study, which is interesting because uh, I use Car Wars as my email address, but uh, that's neither here nor there. But this Car Wars Study says by 2026, 60% of new models will be either EV or hybrid. And I think that's the big kicker there, right, is hybrid. We're seeing a lot of mild hybrids, and it's not that difficult to install a mild hybrid system or some kind of hybrid system and get some volume out of that. Uh, where electric cars are going to be uh, is another question, and I'm sure you have some opinions on that, Matt. Yeah, I think that's the key right there is hybridization. I mean, if you look at Toyota's lineup, they have only one electric vehicle, but practically everything else in their lineup comes in a hybrid version. And I think that the recent um, uh, jacking up of the EPA standards for 2026 is going to only accelerate the hybridization, which in turn puts a couple of people in a bind, namely Volkswagen and General Motors, which have decided that they don't want to do hybrids. They want to do either pure electrics or uh, gas uh, internal combustion engine vehicles and and not go the hybrid route. So. I think you're going to see them a little bit of a climb down from both of them because I don't see how they make um, the the uh, the MPG uh, laws without without some sort of hybridization. Yeah, I mean and that that yeah. feeds into this study about sixty percent being electrified. Yeah, I, there are two schools of thoughts on hybrids, though, aren't there, Matt? I mean, some people love hybrids and think they're a step forward and that they're you know pulling a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that otherwise would go in there and you know, I certainly saw the, see that view, and I've talked to the Toyota executives about that, and they're, of course, gung-ho about hybrids. And then others think that we have to go full battery electric, that you can't have <laughs> combustion. Uh, you right. can't have combustion engines because they spew carbon dioxide. And I think maybe not looking at the fact that many people can't afford battery electrics and, and probably are not going to be able to afford them in 2026 or 2030. And uh uh, I think that leads to some questions about where the industry goes from here. It does, but I think the, the fact is that they have to reach certain, as long as the cars aren't illegal to sell, they have to reach certain uh, fuel economy goals. And the, the battery electrics and even the plug-in hybrids do two things for the manufacturers, and this is why we'll see more of them, is that they will get credits they can use towards selling um, uh, non-hybrid and even some hybrid uh, gas engine vehicles. So um, the the push is definitely in that direction. But you know there are some there are some pure gas vehicles that get almost what hybrids were getting five years ago. So in any event, cars are getting more efficient, whether they're they're gas or hybrid, and that fact alone will will. Uh, uh, ensure that they'll be around rather than than being uh, obsolete. You know, I got to think so, Matt. But there are the uh, extremist environment uh, environmentalists, right, who don't want any kind of combustion at all. And we've seen that, and it's playing itself out right now in the higher fuel prices we have, because those are largely the product of the fact that. Uh, the current administration doesn't you know, care much for fossil fuels and uh, is trying to wean us off them. 
uh, at least Weena saw producing them in the United States. So um, we'll have to see how this unfolds. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Well, here's something I want to get to quickly before the segment ends, and that is Hyundai is dropping some, some of its cars from the lineup, from some of its sedans, the uh, Accent subcompact sedan, the Veloster N hatchback, and the Ionic compact car, not to be confused with the Ionic 5 all-electric, uh, those three are being dropped. What's your quick reaction on that, Matt? Well, I think they're just trying to stream streamline and get out of segments that they're 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 not selling huge numbers. They already dropped the Veloster uh, hatchback and just kept the N, which was the performance version. It was kind of an odd little you know hatchback vehicle with three doors, you know, a, a one rear passenger passenger door and and two front doors. Um, the Ionic, I I own one. <laughs> I'm kind of sad to see it go. It's their version of the Prius. They're not they going to come and take it from you, Matt. So don't worry no, about that. I hope not. Uh, but they had a they had a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, and an electric version. They dropped the electric version for this year, and evidently they're going to drop the, the plug-in and the uh, the hybrid version for next year. And the Accent wasn't, you know, that basically was a rental car for them. When we come back, we'll be doing some road testing. And we'll be road testing the Toyota BZ4X, which happily is written in front of me because I have difficulty remembering <laughs> that name. And the 2022 Chevrolet Silverado ZR2 with Matt DiLorenzo. This is Jack Red with you. And we're so glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Matt DiLorenzo, guest hosting for Chris T. This is Jackie Red back with you, and we're so glad you're with us. It's road test time. Matt is going to be telling us about an all-electric car from Toyota, the Toyota BZ4X. Uh, have at it, Matt. Thanks, Jack. Uh, you know, it's uh, Toyota's first uh, battery electric vehicle that they're going to sell in all the states. I, I mentioned a little earlier that they had a RAV4 for a couple years, California only. Um, it's a it's a mainstream compact SUV. It's got a lot of the styling cues that you would expect from, say, a Rav4. Uh, it's a little different because it's electric. That you know, it looks like it has black body cladding over the wheel arches, but it's actually the uh, sheet metal that's painted black to give it the appearance that it has these you know macho. Uh, uh, body cladding. And there's nothing more macho than a, a small uh, EV, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it it also um, it's a little more car like than SUV like. It sits a little lower. Uh, you get in the vehicle, and one of the weirdest things, and 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 this goes back to the Prius, you know, with their center mounted instrument cluster. Their instrument cluster is is meant to be viewed over the top of the steering wheel. It doesn't matter how how high up or low you adjust it. You're always looking down on on the um, on the instruments, and it makes it seem like the steering wheel is laying in your lap. And I I, I could not I, how I got adjusted. I, I just wasn't as comfortable uh, with that seating position. The and and really, that. the seating position is the same, but it, it it's the orientation yeah. with the dashboard and stuff, right, that uh, makes it seem it, different. Yeah, that throws you off a little bit. I mean, yeah. it, the the instruments are a little bit more in your field of vision to where it's almost like a head-up display, but not quite. But um, that aside, I mean, it's really a, a quick, um, fun-to-drive electric vehicle. It comes in two versions. They They have like a a base front wheel drive version and then they have the all wheel drive version we had the the front drive version at the mpg drive 
And with 200 horsepower, it, it was plenty, plenty powerful, very quick because of the instant application of the torque. Um, you can get a all-wheel drive version, but it, instead of having, a, uh, it, it's, it has two motors of 107 horsepower each, one on the front, one on the back for a total system output of uh, 214. So you're not gaining that much in, in um, performance. Uh, you are getting a little bit more uh, road handling, but with a front-wheel drive setup, you can, you know, most weather conditions, you can you can handle that. So I don't I don't know if the if it justifies the expense. It's another uh, uh, three thousand or so to go all-wheel drive with it. Um, but overall, it's a nice vehicle. It starts at about forty-two thousand dollars. It is for now eligible for the seventy-five hundred dollar tax credit. Um, so it's it really is a interesting alternative to say the um, Rav4 Prime, which is a plug-in hybrid that has about 40 miles of uh, EV range. Yeah, I mean it is uh, it does qualify for the tax credit now, but I think Toyota is pretty close to being on the edge of running out of that. Uh, Sometime could, this year, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we talked a bit about on the uh, on the show recently that Toyota is one of the manufacturers that has gone to Congress and said, "Hey, extend this. We we want more money to to put out there." And uh, you know, I kind of characterized it as a, a bit of a money grab by the manufacturers because it's uh, basically. A, $7,500 incentive that the manufacturer doesn't have to pay uh, to right. get people to buy their vehicle. But uh, there is a lot to like about that vehicle. I, you know, there are a lot of them now kind of uh, in that same cornfield, right? I mean, you have the, the Ionic 5 uh, from Hyundai. Uh, you have the uh, EV6 from uh, Kia. Uh, the ID4 from uh, Volkswagen are all kind of this in, in in many ways the same, aren't they? Yeah, they're all positioned in that forty to fifty thousand uh, dollar price uh, range. Um, compact SUV. There's no real sedans or traditional cars in that segment. Uh, and and even though they call them SUVs, they really strike me as just being like a tall hatchback. You know, they're they're very car like in their execution, the seating, um, a couple of things that are the advantage of having an EV is a flat floor. You got pretty good leg room front and rear. Um, and it's they're, they're actually, in most driving instances, a lot of fun to drive. They're quiet and, and quick. Yeah, they are fun to drive. And the range in them, I think, is like two, they're like in the mid 200s, right. 230, How do you think the Toyota compares with the other ones out there? Do you have a favorite? Is the Toyota up there or is it uh, you know, one of the lesser ones? Uh, I, well, Toyota is a lot more conservative. So if you, if you want some really nice design, nice interior, I'd go with either the, the Kia or the Hyundai. They're, they're a lot nicer. Uh, the Volkswagen has a little bit different, more, you know, European vibe to it. So I, I think they're doing well for Toyota, but it's a Toyota. So you're going to get, you know, if, if, if you want, if you're going to be spending that kind of money, some people like the cachet of the VW, Others will be looking at kind of the newness of the um, of the Koreans. Um, Toyota, it'll be the good old standby. You're not going to get hurt if you buy this car. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that uh, Toyota may be a little bit late to this party, but uh, pretty gung-ho about it. When I talked to their executives a couple of weeks ago, they're certainly uh, 
heavily in favor of what they're going to do EV-wise, although they are also pushing hydrogen and, uh, you know, certainly they're hybrids because uh, they are the hybrid vehicle company, that is for certain. Well, let's talk a bit about your book, Matt, because it's kind of uh, apropos to the, uh, the Toyota vehicle. And uh, just, I, I love the subtitle again, The Tightwad's Guide to EV Ownership. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, having known you for years, I, I don't know that that describes you necessarily, but there's a little well, bit it does of for my there's own... a little bit of tightwad in you, right? Yeah, it, tell us about yeah, the book. Yeah, and all of us, really. I mean, I I looked at all the cars that I've my own personal cars that I've bought over some forty years, and they've all been compact, reasonably priced, and I realized, you know, and and because of the, the a luxury of my job, I could drive anything from. Ferraris to Mercedes and all that other stuff. But when it came to spending my own money, I'm a lot more careful than that. So um, I decided to look at the the affordable EV market. And there are some options there, but not as many as you think. There's about eight vehicles under $40,000. And I, I take the book from the approach of if you've never owned an electric vehicle before, this is what you're going to find. You know, range, how important is range to you? Uh, charging at home, charging on the road, you know, charging a vehicle at a public station is not as cheap as what you might be led to believe. So I, I get into all that, you know, maintenance, whether or not you got to, you know, you don't have to any oil changes, but there are other maintenance items that you have to like changing your brake fluid, things like that, that you don't normally right, would expect right. to do. And uh, it just kind of lays a roadmap out on on what it's like to own an electric car and, and even some alternatives out there, including plug-ins and hybrids and fuel cell vehicles. Well, it's a real practical guide and uh, I think people should look for it. We're going to talk about it more uh, in the last <laughs> segment. I happen to know that our listener question has to do with EV, so we'll okay. tap into your knowledge on that. And and right now I'll get back to our, our road test uh, because my road test vehicle was the Chevrolet Silverado ZR2, which a lot of people are excited about and rightly so. It's kind of Chevy's entrance in into this uh you know, a hot uh, full-size pickup truck market that uh, Ford and uh, Ram have already been in with the Ford Raptor and the Ram TRX. Uh, the Silverado starts about $70,000, so it's uh, right there with the Raptor in terms of cost. It's not necessarily right there in terms of horsepower. Pretty close, I guess, to the Raptor. N not to the uh, level of the Ram TRX that uh, bases at about $80,000 $80, or so. A lot to like about this vehicle. It is a factory-lifted vehicle meant for off-roading. It has uh, suspension upgrades that you could expect from the ZR2. Uh, they're developed to make this uh, a, a big, uh, much better off-roader than a vehicle before. And we got a chance to test that at the MPG Track Day, or MPG Drive Day, rather, uh, uh, out near Malibu recently. And a very challenging off-road course there. Uh, I had a chance to take this big vehicle in a very tight course uh, that had a lot of ups and downs to it, and um, but there was a lot to like about it. It has a 6.2 liter V8 engine, a normally aspirated V8 engine, and one of those, <laughs> you know, almost dinosaurs these days that get going <laughs> out of style, but delivers 420 horsepower and a ton of torque, 460 pound-feet of torque, 10-speed automatic transmission, so uh, plenty of power here, plenty of low-end torque, which you want for off-roading. 
It has very sophisticated shocks, multimatic spool valve dampers. Too complicated to describe at the time we have to describe them, but uh, you know, very complicated uh, suspension and shock absorbers. It has front and rear locking differentials, which is important if you're off-roading, and then a bunch of different chassis calibrations. It has terrain mode that you can do one-pedal rock crawling, which is a cool thing. It has 33-inch off-road tires. I'm liking these higher-profile tires. I'm wondering how you're feeling about that. Well, you need them. I mean, if you're going to go, it's it's truly amazing where you can go in these vehicles. And uh, overlanding and off-roading have become such a huge, huge uh, business uh, for the manufacturers. And, and quite frankly, they're trying to address that market. I mean, they wouldn't be building this truck if there weren't buyers out there ready to plunk down that kind of money. And, and GM typically does a really good job with those types of vehicles. It's cool in a lot of ways. It also looks cool. It has a black hood insert. It has its own unique grill with special lighting. It has a special emblem. Of course, it has the ZR2 badges because you have to let people know that you <laughs> yeah. have a ZR2. And then it has 18-inch wheels, which sounds very small for a full-size truck, but they're carrying these high-profile tires. It is trimmed out the way a premium truck should be, and I just think this is a winner in the marketplace and I think they're going to sell a lot of uh, ZR2s, at least if they can get the parts. Yes. (laughs) Well, two great but very different vehicles there. And when we come back, our special guest will be Andrew Gilliland. He is the Lexus Group VP. Of course, Lexus has some really important new vehicles coming out this year, so we'll talk with him about that, at least what he's going to tell us about. The Lexus RX is one of them. We'll talk about much more than that as well. So stay with us. With Matt DiLorenzo, this is Jack Red with you. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jeff Nierad with you, and we are inside Toyota Motors in uh, Plano, Texas. And we have a terrific guest for you. Andrew Gilliland is uh, Group Vice President and General Manager of the Lexus Division. And uh, number one, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on, Jack. Let's talk about Lexus. I was there at the beginning. I was right there at Motor Trend Magazine, and Lexus was being introduced. It was a, a really interesting time in the auto industry, and in some ways as interesting as we are in that right now, where a lot of changes were going on, a lot of things were, were changing. And then Lexus has established itself as a very strong luxury brand over the years. So tell us a little bit about the evolution of Lexus, would you? But if we're going to go back to 1989, it's going to be a long interview. But uh, as you said, 1989 was... Just go year by year. Okay. Yeah. I'll, you know, you don't have to go month by month. It shouldn't be that big of a problem. I, I got here in 92 um, and 93. No, in 1989, you know, the LS400 really, I think, Jack, set the standard um, for the luxury industry, quite frankly. And it was born out of a desire to build the finest car that this company had ever made. And, and we succeeded at that. Um, and I think that DNA has carried itself through all the way to today, quite frankly, with the products that we're producing now. So, you know, Lexus has always been an engineering exercise as much as it is about the car. And what I mean by that is the finest engineering. And if you recall, you know, the first ad had the champagne glasses and no vibration. And, and the point of all that was is how finely the car was engineered. Well, that DNA has carried itself through all the way to today, quite frankly. So it's been a lot of fun. I've been a part of it um, several times. I've worked at the division um, throughout the years, and it's been fun to watch us evolve 
you know, our product offerings, you know, back in 1989, as you mentioned, 1990, we just had one car and then we brought the ES to market and to see what we have today, especially some of the new stuff that you got an opportunity to see in the last couple of days, um, including the IS, the NX and the RX most recently, you know, it's, um, I'm very proud to work for this company, but I think it's also really an exciting time uh, for the company um, because of the new products that we're bringing to market. Well, it's a fascinating time in the luxury industry, I think, or the luxury phase of the industry, right? Because you see more powertrains, more electrified powertrains in luxuries, certainly, than you're going to see in mass market vehicles. Uh, you see Tesla become a, a big force in, in the luxury area, uh, kind of out of the blue. I mean, uh, how does Lexus, now a well-established brand and, and, and established in a lot of people's minds, this is what a Lexus is like? Uh, do you think you have to change that? I mean, how do you approach what's going on in the industry right now? Well, I think, you know, Lexus has always been the, the, the competitor, right? We don't have a pedigree of some of the other European brands, right? So we, I think in our minds, we're always a startup in the luxury side. Even though we're over 30 years old, um, that's still relatively short. You know, when you look at other competitive brands, especially, like I said, the Europeans, I mean, they, they have a 100-year history. And so I think we always look at ourselves as kind of, um, a disruptor a little bit, quite frankly, and, and gives us a little more freedom um, to build different new um, interesting products. I mean, you were talking about electrification. You know, honestly, Lexus was the first electrified luxury product with hybrids. Um, and we originally did that really out of a, a desire to be more conscientious about the environment. But we also realized that electrification means performance, right? Instant torque, performance, um, does improve fuel economy, certainly helps with emissions, but it can also be fun to drive. And I think that's the, the you know, the, the interesting thing about electrification is it's actually making cars fun to drive. I'm a car guy. Uh, I love driving. It's really the only hobby that I have is driving vehicles. And if you get in a vehicle that's electrified, whether it's a hybrid or a full battery electric, you know, that instant torque and acceleration, I mean, that that's just fun. Um, and so we're, we're excited about the path forward for electrification for our brand and for the industry because we think not only can we be more environmentally conscious, we can make cars that are more fun to drive. Do you think the consumer understands that and the luxury co uh, consumer in particular understands that a hybrid can be more about fun to drive than it is about kind of conventional high fuel economy and, and dull but, yeah. but has that going for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think people, are, I think they're starting to understand that. I mean, I, you know, I hate to mention another competitor, but I will here. You know, the Tesla Plaid or the Porsche Taycan Turbo S. Um, those are two vehicles that if you drive them and you are a sports-oriented type driver like I am, the acceleration of those vehicles is like nothing else I've ever experienced. Um, and so I think their electrification is getting a reputation beyond just environmental um, but that it is fun to drive and that when you combine it um, with an internal combustion engine like in a hybrid powertrain, there's some really quite interesting things that you can do from a performance standpoint or honestly just um, from, you know, fuel savings, fuel economy, environmental sensitivity. Like I said, there's a lot of great things that are coming in our industry. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about being in the industry is those changes are going to be accelerated. Um, in ways that we haven't seen in the last 20 years in terms of changing powertrains. So 
Uh, it's a good time to be in the industry. It's exciting and fun. It's exciting, and I guess it's got to be challenging. You know, a lot of the luxury competitors are at least talking about, <laughs> we'll see if they act on, you know, being nothing but battery electric uh, in a fairly short period of time. And I, I'm curious yeah. as to your reaction to that. Obviously, you're not going in that direction. Or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it doesn't strike me that that's the way Lexus is going. Tell us where Lexus is going and, uh, and your reaction to what others might be doing. Well, I mean, I think we're, we're going, that's the neat thing about Toyota and Lexus. We are going in that direction. And the great thing about our, our, our brands is that we are capable of producing internal combustion engines, hybrid engines, and battery electric powertrains all at the same time. So I think it puts us in a unique position to meet consumer demand because at the end of the day, right, that's what this is all going to be about is what are consumers looking for? And, you know, you have to remember, like I said, we, we, we sort of initiated the hybrid electrification. We've been electrified for over 20 years. So we have experience in electrification that a lot of these brands don't have. And I think you'll see that as a competitive advantage um, over the next five to 10 years is, is BEV or hybrids or plug-ins for that matter become more prevalent. So I think we're in a, actually in a really good position from a competitive standpoint. It strikes me that the luxury market, you know, the consumers for luxury vehicles are changing, right? I mean, you're seeing younger generations get pretty affluent and at some point and fairly soon, it looks like they're going to be the dominant luxury vehicle buyers as opposed to yeah. boomers and pre-boomers, right? So talk a bit about yeah. how Lexus deals with that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, all of us in the industry watch. I mean, you know, you do lots of consumer research, you understand the market, you look at it and look at it and look at it. Um, and it's now, you were talking about that transition between Gen X, Y, and Z and the boomers. Well, it's already occurred. It's occurring right now. So boomers are about 65 million, give or take. If you look at Gen X, Y, and Z combined, they're 135 million. So if you're trying to sell luxury products um, going forward, you're going to have to appeal to that Gen X, Y, and Z. And we think we're doing that with some really neat, interesting products, starting with the IS last year. Um, specifically, you know, the IS350 and IS500 are brought in a much younger consumer. Um, and then we followed that up directly with the NX that's out today. Um, same thing, right? Uh, we had a, a significant decrease in the median age of who is buying that vehicle. Some really, really cool powertrains, including a plug-in that's just unreal um, from a performance standpoint. But we also have got a 2.4 liter turbo. Um, and then you saw the RX uh, the last couple of days, um, which will have four different powertrains, including a plug-in, which will be available later next year. Young people, I think today, are much more environmentally conscious that they, they want to buy products that, that represent something that they believe in, that they care about. And so we're trying to connect with that, but we're also just trying to connect with design, styling, features, technology, the in-cabin experience has never been more important. We've improved on that. So we're always trying to listen to that consumer voice and make sure that we, we bring products to market that are appealing um, to the whole breadth of customers because baby boomers are still buying cars. Um, and we don't want to forget about them either. So, but you can tell in our advertising, um, you can tell in, in the way that we talk to consumers, the way that we reach out to them, how we interact with them um, is very different today than it was 10 years ago. And that's because that younger generation demands it. Let's talk about the RX specifically. That's an 800 pound gorilla for you. It was super successful from the intro. 
it has been the dominant vehicle in that segment for a long time. And that's in some ways a double-edged sword, isn't it? When you're, when you're trying to reach a, a younger market and you have an established brand that's kind of the, the conventional choice. Talk about it that, would you? Yeah, I mean, RX you know, is the franchise. Um, and for somebody like me that has the responsibility, you know, you, you lose sleep at night knowing that 40% of the overall volume of the brand comes out of one vehicle. And that's RX. So you have to make sure you get that right. And you have to make sure that it's got what people are looking for. Um, but I think it transcends generation because, it, you know, if you look at the vehicle, it does everything that a young, typically it's a young family, right, with maybe a kid or two. And it does everything right. It's fun to drive. It is functional. It has utility. Um, it has performance now with the RX 500H. Um, performance models that we showed you last night. So you just, you got to make sure that you have your market research in place and you understand what consumers are looking for. But I will also tell you, you know, we have some products coming next year that are specifically being designed for younger families where we need to do better. Um, if you look at the one place where is a, you know, the guy that runs the place would like to do better, it's with young families. Gen X, Y, and Z families with kids. Um, and we have some products that we're designing that, that you'll hear more about in the next few months that I think will, will help target that consumer group. Um, but RX is a great vehicle. I mean, my family has one. We love driving it. It's an F-Sport. Um, and we enjoy the vehicle, and it does everything you want a, 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 an SUV to do today. And frankly, you know, the industry's all moved to SUV. If you're not making a great SUV today, you're going to have trouble um, you know, reaching out to customers. It's about 75 to 80% of the industry, depending on the month. So as you already know, so. Crossover is the de facto car, right? I mean, a sedan isn't the, the vehicle of choice for the vast majority of Americans and, and going forward. Yeah, and you, I, yep. I, I imagine yep. you don't expect that to change anytime soon, right? Yeah, I mean, we still see a place for sedans, right? It's not as big as it was, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You look at the numbers. But again, you look at IS and IS 500, IS 350, IS 250, young people still are driving cars. Um, some in the industry have chosen to abandon sedans. We won't. Um, we still think there's good volume there. Um, and we enjoy driving cars. I mean, we're a, a group of people that still loves cars. We enjoy it. We're passionate about the vehicles that we make. And so we think there's still a market, but you're right. The vast majority of you know, sales in the future, I think, are going to be continue to be crossovers. Um, and, and SUVs. Tell us how performance fits into the, the Lexus scheme of things. Um, you know, performance is something that's incredibly important to the brand. I mean, luxury consumers, there's a big portion of them that, that want performance vehicles. And, you know, we understood that and we know that it really, I think if you want to look at us as a brand and you point to something that says how important is, is performance, look no further than the LFA. I mean, that, that is, I think, for all of us, the spiritual pinnacle that we, we always aspire to. But IS500 came out of our desire to, to have a performance vehicle. Um, we, we may have some things in the pipeline that are hyper-performance vehicles. Certainly, you know, if you look at our racing program with the RCF, um, we've done very well there. And, and that's another connection point for consumers, for us to, to show what we can do from a performance standpoint and then take that. Um, technology and engineering that we learn on the track and put it into cars, like I said, like the RCF, the LC500 is another great example. So performance is something that we are continuing to focus on. Uh, we will continue to focus on, and we'll, we'll have some news in the next 
I don't know, 12 to 18 months about our direction there, but I can tell you it's extremely positive. Well, Andrew Gillum, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you spending a little time with me, and uh, thanks for, for giving me an opportunity to talk about Lexus. Ah, my pleasure to talk to you. Stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back to America on the Road with Matt Lorenzo. This is Jackie right back with you for listener question time. Chris Teague is not with us this week. He's taking the week off and Matt is with us. Matt is the author of a book on buying an affordable EV, which there it is. It's the affordable electric car, How to, the guide to buying same, uh, the tightwads guide. It's a beautiful thing from Matt Lorenzo. And uh, I have a question apropos that. And that is, uh, this is from Charlene in Boca Raton, Florida. This is what Charlene asks. I'm thinking of buying an EV and I want some practical advice. You came to the right place, Charlene. It can get pretty confusing, she says. What are the most important things I should be looking at and what isn't as important? And I think this is a pretty interesting question, Matt, because some things are important and maybe some uh, that aren't being reported on and some things aren't not as important and but are being getting big play. What's your take on that? Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that one of the most important yet not important things is range. Everybody says, oh, you got to have 300 miles range, 400 miles range. The more range you get, the more you're going to spend. And I think the r- real question, Charlene, you have to ask yourself is, what is the range I need rather than what is the range I want? And everybody will want to sell you more range, but they're going to be giving you a lot more money. You know, it'll cost you a lot more money. The other thing is that that if you do get a less expensive EV with a shorter range, you can recharge at home. So, and if you're not going to go more than 100 or 150 miles in a day, you'll be back home with your car plugged in. So, um, I don't think you have to freak out as uh, out as much about range as people are telling you. The important thing is how much is it going to cost me. The other thing you're going to have to do, and and this is an increasingly important part of the shopping process, is finding out what sort of incentives are available. Uh, Tesla and GM have already blown through their $7,500 tax credits. Toyota is about to, and I'm sure the Koreans will be through there soon. So when you're shopping for that vehicle, really, um, you have to take into consideration what your ultimate bottom line is going to be. Matt, thanks so much for being with us. We really do appreciate it. Always great being here, Jack. Thanks. And uh, we appreciate you being with us as well. With our thanks to the uh, SportsMap radio network stations for carrying America on the road. Of course, look for our podcast version of, of the show uh, on all the major podcast outlets. And uh, for Matt Lorenzo and for Chris Teague, who's not with us this week, thanks so much for being with us. This is Jack Nerad saying join us again next week for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at DrivingToday.com slash auto insurance. That's DrivingToday.com slash auto hyphen insurance. And if you're looking to buy a new car, a used car, just care about cars, go to drivingtoday.com. Drivingtoday.com, where there's new information all the time about cars, trucks, and sport utility vehicles. Drivingtoday.com is the official automotive website of America 
on the road.